Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Aaron McMillan opens the Scriptures. I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 34 as we continue to walk through some bright lights in dark times. You know, it's pretty gloomy out today, rainy, stormy, nasty. That compares nothing to what has happened since the last time we met last week in the life of Judah, the nation of Judah. And so last week we talked about Hezekiah, and for the most part, Hezekiah had a good run. He was a good king. He instituted reforms, and he's remembered well. But after Hezekiah comes his son, Manasseh. And Manasseh is not a good king. Manasseh is actually a terrible king. There's uh, one verse I'll point out in chapter 33. It's verse 2. And Manasseh, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Now later in his life, Manasseh ended up repenting, humbling himself, coming back to the Lord. Except by then it was pretty much too late. He reigned for 55 years, and a majority of that, the nation just went off into all kinds of uh, idolatry and pagan worship. And so by the time Manasseh came to his senses, the damage had already been done. And so when he died, his son, Ammon, came into power as king. And if you can imagine, he was even worse than his father. In verse 23 of chapter 33, it says, And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. But this Ammon incurred guilt more and more. And you get the picture of it was worse and worse and worse and more guilt and more guilt and more guilt. And God only let him reign for two years. His own servants conspired to assassinate him. And so from Hezekiah, you have two of his lineage that were just terrible, evil kings. Ammon was assassinated. And it's in the midst of this chaos, almost 60 years past the time of good King Hezekiah, in the middle of all this chaos, we get to meet a bright light, a bright light known as Josiah. And so that's where we'll pick up in chapter 34, but why don't we just begin with a quick word of prayer. Dear Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning from your word, that we would learn from you, that we would have a desire to be godly, to walk in your ways, to learn from the example of Josiah and see how we might apply that to our lives today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So the first two verses of Second Chronicles 34 give us the idea of what kind of man Josiah was. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign because his father was assassinated. Keep that in mind. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. This is kind of a summary statement, a preview of the kind of man Josiah is going to become. Josiah, will learn, without even having a copy of God's word or God's law, was walking in the very way that God had always intended his people to walk. 
in Deuteronomy chapter 5, after God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, he, he tells them, tells Moses, you're going to have to tell the people to be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And that's exactly what we learn of Josiah. He was doing exactly what God had required of his people way back in the beginning as they entered the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we get this idea of you shall love the Lord your God. Right? This is a familiar verse. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Well, if you go to 2 Kings 23:25, we get another statement about King Josiah. And it says, Before him there were no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. There is no king like King Josiah is what... The kings tell us it's a remarkable statement, especially considering the the times and the circumstances that Josiah was born into. But even more astounding is what we'll dive into for the rest of the chapter. Not only did Josiah personally walk with integrity and faithfulness, he would lead the entire nation of Judah in restoring worship of the one true God. So the question that I want to ask and answer this morning is, well, what did Josiah have? What did Josiah have that set him apart from the other kings and leaders of the day? And then can I follow in this example? And so the first characteristic that I notice about Josiah is that he had a driving passion. Look with me just the first half of verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, so now he's gone from age 8, To age 16, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. Josiah had a a driving passion for godliness. He had an unwavering pursuit of God. This is why in verse 2 it says he didn't waver from the left or the right. He stood firm on the ground of God following in his ways. He does this. Despite his heritage, despite who his father was, despite who his grandfather was. He does this despite his culture. They're in the divided kingdom, except Assyria has already conquered northern Israel. There's occupied territory up there. You have the southern kingdom now of Judah, but they're full of idolatry. Pagan worship, wickedness is all over the land. Yet here is Josiah at age 16 who has committed to seek the God of David, his father. He does this despite his age. He comes to power at age 8. And then here at age 16, he makes the commitment to follow after God. If you think about it, how much responsibility would you give to a third grader? And would you blame him if he fell into the same kind of mess that his father and his father fell into? I don't think so, because, I mean, what is a little kid going to do? They're going to follow in the ways of their father. But this was different for Josiah. There was something different about him. And this comes even despite his position. Because, yes, he was young, but he was also king. And for a, a, in a large way, that meant he got to make the rules. No one was telling him he had to act this way or do this thing. 
He was in charge. He was king. He could have done whatever he wanted. He could have enacted whatever laws he wanted. He could have brought in whatever gods he wanted. He has an unwavering pursuit of God, despite all of these things. And so the question, can you have a driving passion to follow the Lord? And I would say, well, of course you can. Josiah did, starting at 8. And then reinforces that at age 16 as he's figuring things out. But I wonder if you find yourself making excuses for not seeking the Lord, for not having a driving passion, for not pursuing God in an unwavering passion. Do you consider the circumstances of your life, where you came from, who your father was, who your mother was, the circumstances that you were born into, the difficult things that you've had to endure, the past history of your family or the legacy or the lack thereof? Is that an excuse for you not to pursue godliness? I think Josiah says no. The question is not can you, the question is do you? Do you have a driving passion? Do you have a driving passion? Is it to walk in the way of the Lord? This is a choice. Yes, you can, but you have to choose. Josiah chose to seek the Lord, to seek the God of his father, not Ammon, not Manasseh, not even Hezekiah, but David. He said, that's the God I want to serve. You know, it's graduation season. For a lot of our teens, seniors, this whole year probably, they've been anxiously anticipating graduation, but with that comes a whole bunch of questions. What's going to come next? Where are you going to go to school? What am I supposed to do? What are people going to think? What do I want to do? How much money will I make? Am I finally going to get a girlfriend in college? I don't know what teenagers are thinking these days anymore. That's why we hired a new guy. Welcome, Andrew. All right? But what Josiah says is that age 16, even before many of our teenagers today are graduating high school, there's one goal that we can be pursuing. And it ought to be to seek the Lord, to follow in the steps of God, to live a life that might please Him. And my fear is that, especially for teenagers today, we've bought the lie of the culture. And hey, you're a teenager, don't worry about it. Hey, you're a teenager, it's not important. Hey, you're a teenager, you'll figure it out later. Don't worry about deciding anything at 15 or 16. Don't worry about deciding anything at 20 or 22 or 25. We just keep lengthening the period of adolescence. No responsibility, no concept of authority. The expectation for our high schoolers and college students and a very large portion of our culture is that, hey, they're just going to go find what makes them happy. They're going to go find themselves. They're going to go out and find whatever makes them happy. They're going to reject any sense of authority or whatever their parents might have believed. I think that's the standard expectation for college students today. Forget what anyone else says. Do your own thing. Have a good time. Maybe eventually you'll work it out. Go experiment. Even at a young age, Josiah had a driving passion to walk with the Lord. It's reminiscent of what Paul says in Philippians 3. But there's one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on to the goal for the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
And as I read Philippians 3, and as I look at Josiah, there is no reason, teenager, that you cannot make this same declaration, whether you're 8 or 12 or 16. But before we're too harsh on the teenagers or young college students in the room, we should ask ourselves this same question. Again, do you have a driving passion, adults? Are you setting an example of zeal and excitement and purpose as you follow the Lord? Are you living a life that sets you apart from the world around you? Are you living a life where a teenager sees and looks and says, I want to follow their God? It's easy to bemoan the current generation. But I wonder if they're simply just following the example of apathetic, disengaged, disconnected adults who claim Christ but don't do more than show up to church on a Sunday morning, who display no passion, no desire to follow God, but then complain when the next generation doesn't act the way that they think they should. Josiah's unwavering pursuit of God isn't just a lesson for 16-year-olds, isn't just a lesson for young adults. Josiah's unwavering pursuit of God is a lesson for us all to follow. Where did this unwavering pursuit lead? Well, it led to a radical attack on sin. It's verses 3 through 7. And in his 12th year, so now he's described as a boy at age 16, but now we're in the 12th year, so now he's 20 years old. And at that time and culture, what we see is now he's basically assumed all the authority of king as a man. So in the twelfth year, what does he begin to do? He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the carved and the metal images. They chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the ashram and carved in the metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. Sounds pretty harsh. It is. And that's the tame version. You can go to 2 Kings 23 and read he did even more. Josiah would spend the next six years of his life cleansing the land from every semblance of pagan worship and idolatry. He started by clearing out the idols in the temple. He said, we're going to start in Jerusalem and even narrower than that, we're going to start in the temple. We've got to get rid of the idols in the temple. Get them out. And then he goes to the city of Jerusalem. And then he goes to the region of Judah. And then, I won't read all the the verses 6 and 7, it it names some more cities. And and where you get to eventually is the city of Naphtali. And the reason why that is significant is because that's the furthest north province, not just of Judah, but of the northern Israel. And that's significant because, again, northern Israel had been conquered, wiped off the face of the map by Assyria. But because of geopolitical issues, Assyria was weakening in power. And so Josiah says, hey, we are Israel. I'm bringing unity to God's people. I don't care if it's Judah or the northern tribes. We're going and we're getting rid because this is the land that God has promised. So I'm going and I'm making it my mission. To cleanse the land. 
Not just the temple, not just the city, not just the region, southern kingdom of Judah, but all of Israel. I'm getting rid of it all. His pursuit of God led to a radical attack on sin. And so here's a principle for us today. A passion for godliness will always result in the purging of sin. It was true for Josiah. It's certainly still true for you and me today. We don't have to go around the land of Israel. We have to search our hearts. We have to search our hearts for the idols and the crevices, from the top to the bottom to the left to the right. However, I don't know what shape the heart is in. We've got to go all the way in and say, I'm not letting sin have a place in my heart. Jesus speaks to the radical actions that we're called to take when we're in fighting against sin. Right? Matthew 5 is a familiar passage. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, well then tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye, or if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now there's a little debate about that passage. Like, is he being serious? Or is it just hyperbole? I tend to think he's serious. I don't know if we have to go to those extremes, but I think Jesus is making the point, this is how severe sin is. Jesus was teaching his disciples and all those who were listening the radical nature of our fight against sin. And we may read the actions of Josiah as extreme, but I would suggest that if we read Josiah's actions as extreme, it's because we don't understand the pervasive and destructive nature of sin. Ed Welch, speaking of this battle against sin, says the only possible attitude towards out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. We have a dangerous tendency, and I say we, okay, we have a dangerous tendency to minimize our sin, to make excuses for our weaknesses, to give it a place in our hearts, to compromise God's standards or to justify our fleshly desires. Instead of cutting them down, chopping them up, burning them, and scattering the ashes, we just let them have a little corner in our heart, a little place in our life, a little closet that no one knows about, a little space where we get on our phone at night or we go over here when no one's looking. That's not fighting a war. That's leaving room for the devil. And it's a dangerous, dangerous game. We like to talk about our problems, but we never take action to change our situation. Josiah declared war against the idolatry of his day, but he didn't just talk about it. He went and did something. Those who are pursuing Christ ought to be declaring war against the sin that is in our hearts and then do something. I've talked to enough teenagers to know, but I've also talked to enough adults to know that we're pretty good about identifying sin, and we know what's right and what's wrong, but then when it comes to cutting it out, to doing the hard work, we tend to back off. We tend to make excuses. We tend to, well, I don't, I can't get rid of my phone. Well, I can't not go there. Well, can't I just stay friends with them on social media? Like, no. War against sin. There's no room for compromise. 
with Josiah. There's no room for compromise with us. We must have the same attitude as we work to uncover the sin that may be hindering our walk with Christ in our pursuit of God. Josiah's passion here didn't end with the cleansing of the land. It also then instilled in him a desire to restore true worship in the house of the Lord. Skipped over this verse, but Paul describes our battle against sin as a life and death situation as well. But we move on. So we have a driving passion, an unwavering pursuit of God that leads to a radical attack against sin, but then we see a desire for true worship. I'm not going to read the whole next section, mostly because I can't pronounce all the names, but what happens in verses 8 through 13 is that Josiah, after six years of cleansing the land, it com- he comes back to Jerusalem. And he's looking around and he's looking at the temple. And the temple is in bad shape. Because remember, now it's been more than 60 years and it's just been sitting there neglected. Imagine if we never did anything to this building for the past 60 years. It wasn't even here, but pretend it was. We never did anything. It wouldn't be looking very good. And so Josiah makes provision for the funding um, of a repair project. And then he delegates teams of people to get to work uh, overseeing and, and doing the work of repairs to the temple. And so that's verses 8 through 13. You can read that on on your own time. Good luck with pronunciation. Um, I think there's two brief takeaways uh, from this this section. Josiah's, Josiah's desire to see the temple restored. Especially in the Old Testament time of the temple. The, the temple and the temple's condition was a reflection of the people's heart towards God. It was broken down. It was abandoned. It was unimportant. That's exactly how the people felt about God. And it showed of his temple. Now I say in the church age where we are today, we recognize that there's no longer need for the temple. We understand that the worship of God is more than a building. But I would contend that the condition of even our building here does communicate something about our view and sense of God. And when we have a passion for godliness, I think it shows up not only in how the building is maintained and and cared for, but in how we appreciate and use what God has given us. And I wouldn't say it's a one-to-one correspondence, But I like to think I can see how this principle is connected to the many people who have have contributed and continue to contribute to uh, maintaining our church building over over the years. Um, And why things like even like carpet and paint and and rocks and, and lights and things like that, I think in some way it shows or reflects our heart and our view of God. Certainly our building is not going to take priority over scripture or preaching or things like that. But I would say it does paint a picture of how we view and see God. But more importantly, in this, this section, 8 through 13, I think what you see that we should also emulate is just uh, verse 12. And the men did the work faithfully. 
you get this idea of there's a whole bunch of people involved. We had to collect money. We had to uh, get workers. We had to get people to oversee the workers. And, and I think what we see is what happens when God's people come together to complete a task for the glory of God. And it ought to look like people serving faithfully side by side in unity. And it's going to take a bunch of people that have various gifts and talents to accomplish the task. And I, and I hope even if we move hopefully outside of the building, but we see the correlation today as we look to serve the Lord faithfully in whatever task he has called us to, that whatever we put our hands to do, that we would see power in our unity together as we strive to serve our God faithfully. So, so far we can see just in this one aspect of Josiah's driving passion, um, how much it made a difference in God's people over the course of 10 years. What's interesting is there was something major missing during this whole time, and it's about to be found in our, our next section. And so what we find is that Josiah not only had a driving passion for godliness, but he also had a guiding light in his pursuit of revival and restoration. We see it in verses 14. Uh, we'll start with 14 through 18. We see the uncovering of the word. While they were bringing out money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, verse 14, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. And what that implies is they didn't know it was there and they didn't have it before. And likely what was happening is over the past 60 years with evil, wicked kings, they didn't care about what God said. They probably got rid of any extra copies they had around. And we learn from chapter 35 that the ark was moved at some point, or at least I think priests were taken around. There's a faithful remnant. Um, and attached or next to the ark was supposed to be this book of the law. And so whatever exactly happened, what we do know is that the law of the Lord had been completely abandoned, gone, and Josiah didn't even know about it. So what happens in verse uh, 15 through 18 is, so Hilkiah finds the book, and then he's like, hey, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And so he gives it to this dude, Shapin. Shapin brings it to the king. But when he shows up to the king, he doesn't even reference the book yet. He's like, hey, guess what? Building project's going great. Renovations are looking wonderful. We got the curtains, we got the rugs, we got the paint. It's great. And then he's like, oh yeah, by the way, verse 18, then Shapin the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. He, he just gave me a book. And Shapin read from it before the king. The uncovering of the word is about to unleash some more reform and some more revival. But before we get there, want to stop and talk about it for a second so the book of the law of the lord had gone missing judah should have known this it was the responsibility of the king to copy by hand his own copy of the law he was required to read it all the time so that he would know the law internalize the law and then help lead the people in the law but obviously the past two kings could care less about god's law or what it had said but it just shows how far away the people had gone from god but notice the significant piece of verse 18 is not that they found a book. 
It's not that they found a book or even that Hilkiah found the book of the law. The significance is the last phrase. And Shapin read it from it before the king. The book of the law wasn't just found. Ooh, this will make a nice bookend in the royal library. Ooh, this is a pretty cover. It wasn't just found, it was read. And this is where the power of the word lies. Not in possessing it. It had evidently been in the temple this whole time or nearby. The power was in opening it up, hearing it read. And I want you to think for a minute, because unlike Josiah, we have more access to the word of God than I think any time in human history. But the principle still stands. If we don't open it up and read it, it might as well be covered in dust, sitting neglected in the temple or in the trash bin or in the basement of our building. I was going to bring in my collection of Bibles. I have probably 15 in my office, all different covers, and they're very pretty, and I got parallel versions. I even have a Greek New Testament, maybe some Hebrew. I don't know how to read it, but I got it on my shelf. I can pull it up on my computer. I got so many Bibles in my Bible software, I can pull it up on my phone right now. I have a Bible right here. There's probably 100 Bibles in this room. You have unprecedented access to the Word of God. It does you no more good than when it was stuck in the ruins of the temple if we never open it up. There is power in the word, but only to the degree that it is opened up and read. And I think sometimes we might just have the opposite problem of Josiah. Because we have such easy access to the word, I think we neglect its importance. We take it for granted. Well, I don't need to read it today. Because I can do it tomorrow. And if I don't have a Bible at home, I can look it up on my phone, or I can come to church, it's like, oh, no big deal. And if I have a question, I don't really need to be in the Word, I'll just Google it. And Google will tell me what I should know from the Bible. There is danger, I think, with the amount of access that we have, I think the danger lies in treating it flippantly because we've reduced its value. Our um, our mission team or a group of leaders just went to the Philippines and for the first time ever they have a printed copy of the New Testament. I guarantee you they don't treat that flippantly. We're spoiled, especially American Christianity. The power lies not in possessing the fattest Bible, the most Bibles, the coolest Bible. The power is found in opening it up. Because when we open up the word of God, it should cause a response. And that's what we see next. We have the uncovering of the word, but then we have the conviction of the word. Verse 19, and when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. This was a sign of of grief, of overwhelming emotions, Stress, anxiety, fear, maybe even. What will I do? What will we do? What have we done? All these things are racing and he rends his garments. He was immediately filled with conviction over the sin, not only that 
maybe in his life, but over his sin of his people, Judah. He was expressing sorrow, grief over their disobedience. I think we don't know exactly all that was in this scroll or in this book, but it was certainly contained most, if not all, of Deuteronomy. It likely could have contained all five books of the Torah. And and if he's hearing, especially Deuteronomy, being read, and you read Deuteronomy this week, (laughs) chapters 4 through 13, he's going to hear about all the sins that Israel committed. It's going to be one after the other. He's like, that's us. That's my people. All the sins that they committed. And then you get to chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. And it's going to be all the things that Israel was supposed to be doing. Except for sure the last 60 years, Israel had not been doing anything that they were supposed to be doing. So they have all their past sins and the things that they certainly have been doing wrong, even still today. And then they have all the things that they should have been doing that they weren't doing. And then you get to Deuteronomy chapter 27 through like 30. And you know what those chapters include? Covenant curses. What's going to happen if you don't follow the law of the Lord? And so no doubt that as Josiah, leader of and king of Judah, is hearing all of these things. It's just like indictment after indictment after indictment. I think Josiah is rightly fearful of what may be coming to Judah. And he responds appropriately. Grief, we'll read in a second, also humility. And so the question that comes to my mind is, well, what's your response? To the word of God. Again, is it just a flippant thing that maybe we'll pick up on the way out to the door or we can open up the Bible app and not really think about it? Have you ever took the time to open it up and how do you respond? There's multiple ways we should respond, but in particular in this context, when we hear the word of God and we hear about the judgment of God and we hear about the sin of the people and the sin of our own hearts, we should be responding like Hezekiah, or like, well, yes, him too, and Josiah. Man, this is where Paul talks in Romans 7 about, hey, the law still serves a purpose today, convicts us of sin, shows us that we haven't met the standard, shows us the judgment that is coming to all those who do not live up to God's standard. It points and shows us Jesus and our need for him. John 16, 8. Jesus says to his disciples, hey, listen, the Holy Spirit's coming. And when the Holy Spirit comes, what's he going to do? He's going to convict the world over sin and judgment and righteousness. Paul writes the Corinthian church. And and he had to call him out about some things. And he's like, I'm sorry that you were grieved, but I'm not sorry. Because the grief that you felt uh, is verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. He said, hey, there's a, there's a good way to respond to the word of the Lord, and that's with repentance, and that's what brings us closer to Christ. How do you respond to the word of God? Is it with indifference? Do you open it up and read it at all? Do you respond with praise and joy at times? How do you interact with Scripture? We're called to interact and respond to the word of God. But in this, understandably, from my perspective, uh, Josiah kind of wanted to know for sure that what he was hearing was actually from the Lord. And so we have this thing, it's in, in verse 20, and he goes to Hilkiah, he's like, listen, 
I need you to go inquire of of the Lord for me. And because if I, what I'm hearing is true, our nation is in dire trouble. And so we get to verse 22, and now we have the confirmation of the word. All right, so I'm just going to summarize this. It's like 22 to 28. And so, again, at the time, remember, they just now found the written law. And what I think was happening is there were still people who were following God. And in particular, there were a few prophets around. One of them was Jeremiah. One of them was Zephaniah at this time. Um, but also, apparently, there's a woman here. Her name was Huldah. She doesn't show up at anywhere else in Scripture except for this occasion with Josiah. But God was working through Huldah, and people apparently knew that. She had a reputation. Maybe she was in hiding in the city during the past 60 years. We, we don't know. But they knew that Huldah spoke to, and at times for, God. I just think it's neat that God chooses to use a woman here in this circumstance. And so Hilkiah goes, and he with the other uh, people, Shapin and those guys, and they show up and they're like, listen, Josiah wanted us to come down and see if this was like for real from God. And so in verses 24 and 25, Huldah, the prophetess, was like, yeah, that's going to happen. God's mad because they've broken their word and their covenant, specifically verse 25, because they have forsaken me and made offerings to other gods. He's been provoked to anger. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. I can imagine a big gulp at that moment because they're going to have to go tell Josiah this, like this is legitimate, the word of the Lord. But then Huldah gives a message to also bring back to King Josiah. And it's verse 27. Regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humble yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, a.k.a. since you have responded rightly to the word of the Lord, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back the word to the king. And so this isn't like Hezekiah that we looked at last week where Isaiah goes to him and says, hey, get your house in order, you're going to die. This is more mercy. And so what Huldah gives word to go tell Josiah is, listen, yeah, this judgment is coming, it's going to be bad, and this wrath is not getting turned away. But good news is you're not going to see it. So however long you live, you're not going to have to see this come down on your people. And so I'm going to skip over talking about... We don't go talk to prophets today. That's what this verse is is implying, and we'll just kind of skip over that. It's another subject for another day. Other than just to say that the written word now is we have complete in the canon, and so we have no need to go find a prophet because now we have the written word sealed by the Holy Spirit, and that's all I say about that. But just because we have the benefit of the written word does not mean that we should not seek wise counsel when we are facing uncertainty, confusions, questions. We're not sure what this understands or what this means. And so, yes, the church can serve as that that resource for you. Elders, teachers, gifted men and women who can give you spiritual insight and, and wisdom. There's There's power and wisdom in seeking out men and women of God just like Josiah did here. In any case, Huldah confirms judgment is coming, 
and that Josiah has received mercy because he responded rightly. And it's here at this moment that I think Josiah has a choice. It's not really in the text, it's just my conjecture. Imagine if you're Josiah. When you get word back, there's nothing these people can do. God's wrath is coming. And you know you're going to be fine. And he's just been working and working and working to try to get these people back in line with God's law. And it's just been a rough time. And so maybe it's just in my flesh, but I'm like, you know what? I'm done with these people. God's done with this. These people, I'm done with these people. I'm just going to sit around and wait until God, you know, takes me home because I'm going to die in peace. And these people are just going to be left to their own devices. And this is what differentiates Josiah from me, maybe. In a good way. Last thing, what does Josiah have? Well, he has a solemn commitment. Look at verse 29. He starts with reading the word. He says, you know what? Yeah, these people are going to face judgment. But that doesn't change the fact that we're still God's people and God is still God. And so I'm going to do everything I can to give them the resources and the understanding. And I'm going to read them the word. And maybe they'll respond like me. And maybe he's thinking God might turn back and give them mercy as well. I don't know. But I know he decided to dig in, to go back to tell the people what was coming and what was going on. And so he said, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to read the word. So he gathers the elders. He gathers all the people of the city and says, listen up. And he reads them the law. And he read, it's verse 30, and he read and they're hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. It's all the leaders, all the people, the great and the small. No partiality. He just said, you all need to hear this. This is what's coming. But then he takes a step farther and he, I would say he renews his personal commitment because this is what characterized Josiah's whole life. Verse 31, And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. But he does it in front of the people. He stands up and says, Listen, this is the word of the Lord and this... For all you elders and all you people, both great and small, everybody under the that can hear my voice, Josiah stands up and says, I'm making a covenant. I'm setting the standard. I'm setting the example. This is what I am committing to do. And then we get to verse 32, and here's a benefit of being king. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And so Josiah says, you know what? I'm making this commitment, and guess what? I'm king. I'm making sure the law of God is the law of this land. No more idols are coming back until God takes me home or brings his judgment. We will follow God. And so he does that for the people. And I think he's truly doing it for the benefit of the people because he knows that there's blessing to those who follow the law of the Lord. And we have one more verse. And I've just labeled it the epilogue. We're back to the summary. We started with the summary, now we're at the summary again, at the very end, the book ends. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. And like, man, that's a great legacy. We'll come back next week because Pastor Keith's going to talk about the continuing legacy of Josiah. 
I don't think I'm spoiling anything, but I want you to take a more maybe critical look at verse 33. All his days, as in all Josiah's days, they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. It's a little hint that when Josiah dies, the people don't keep following in the way of the God of their fathers. It doesn't stick. Well, how else do I know that? Well, Jeremiah tells us that. So here's the end verse, and then here's what Jeremiah says. Prepare your ears. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, and in verse 7 he describes more stuff about as uh, northern Israel. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, the northern kingdom, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah... Josiah's kingdom, did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Remember what Josiah was trying to do, get rid of the stones and the trees and all that stuff? And he was successful. But look at verse 10. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart. But in pretense declares the lord what we see is josiah was a great king he did a lot of good i think he did it with the right heart but at the end of the day he couldn't change the hearts of the people and the epilogue for me is that josiah leaves us pointing us to our need for a greater king Josiah was able to rid the land of idols and cleanse the temple, but he wasn't able to change the hearts of the people. And Josiah was a great king, but his reign ended with his death, just like every king that came before him. Josiah's reforms declared, um, delayed God's wrath, but judgment inevitably would come. And so we're left waiting, longing for a better king. And the good news is we know this king. His name is Jesus. We find a king who can truly cleanse our hearts, who can replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. We find a king whose reign will never end. Yes, one who died, but one who was risen again, rising victorious over sin and death. We find a king who can save us, not just from temporary judgment, but eternal judgment and who brings us eternal peace with God. We're left wanting to follow the example, the good example of King Josiah. But even more importantly, we see our need for a savior that is not left to our own efforts, but we place our trust in the perfect king who lived and died for me. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray there's so much here We could have had three sermons, and we just did it in one. So I pray that we would just find one thing, one thing that we can take from the the story and life of of Josiah or all that was happening, that you would work in our hearts, that you would would stir us to have a desire, a passion uh, to follow you, that we would truly have a driving passion uh, for godliness, that we would use your word to guide us, that we would commit, no matter what anyone else does, that we will stand and walk in the ways of the one true God. 
that we would know the power and reign of Christ, that we would trust in what he has already accomplished on our behalf, that we might respond to his mercy and his grace. We pray these things in your name. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.